Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Angelina Galitova. She's the chair of the board of the California Independent System Operator. That's the organization that runs the transmission grid in California. She's been on the board since 2011 and in 2020 was elected chair by her fellow board members. Please welcome Angelina Galitova. So Angelina, welcome to Cleaning Up. Thank you for having me, Michael. Great to be here. It's a great pleasure to see you. It's been some time and obviously we've had this terrible pandemic, so neither of us have been traveling. I'm trying to remember the last time we met, I think I came to uh, visit you in California. Yes, yes, you came to the ISO. We had a great visit and you enjoyed touring our control center, I remember. That's right. I did visit the, the control center. Uh, is it called the ISO control center or the CAISA? I mean, CAISA would be the California Independent System Operator, correct? Correct, yes. Or the ISO, which is the independent system operator. We usually call it the ISO because we are in California and we know that it's the California ISO. And I'll tell you one of my takeaways when I visited that control center. So uh, we're going to have to sort of um, help the audience to imagine this. Some will be watching the video. Some will be um, listening on the podcast. In fact, more on the podcast. And there's this kind of mezzanine with a glass screen in front. And you look down into the control room and there's all these... Um, uh, huge screens and little clusters of people uh, very calmly um, contemplating this almost what well, looks like an almost fully automated system, but it looks really complicated. I mean, it's a lot of computers. Um, and one of my takeaways was, uh, I bet it's not always that calm. And another Correct. one was, <laughs> I bet they don't have this amount of technology in lots of the developing world where they're trying to, you know, also uh, integrate lots of variable renewables and do all these complicated things, but not everybody has the incredible resources of a CAISO, right? That's true. And you do need to have real-time operations and the more renewables that you have on the grid, you notice probably on the far right, there were two desks just dedicated to weather forecasting. And they're so proud of themselves because they basically do not make any errors. They can predict when a cloud cover is coming and how much production for solar systems will go up or down, depending on cloud cover where it is, or when wind picks up or the wind goes down. So it's, it's really exciting. They're, they're, I think their goal is to have a less than 1% error rate. That's they claim that they're much more, much more precise than the weather channel. So now we're going to come back to some of the times when they may not be looking quite as calm as the day that I visited. Um, but before we do that, um, let's just take a step back and say, what is it that the CAISO actually does? This is the system operator. Um, but what, what is it that it does? What is it? How is it? Um, what is its job? And what are its metrics? The California ISO was set up to operate the California grid. So it covers the California grid and it also operates the real-time market and the wholesale market for energy sales throughout California. But in the last years, because we're so good and we're so able to integrate renewables and we're such leaders, we decided to also launch a voluntary market, which is the energy imbalance market and open it for partners throughout the West to join in and optimize the operation of their system. So California now operates 82% of the Western wholesale market um, in real time, which is really very exciting. And we're looking forward to launching into the day ahead market too, so that we can optimize even more. Short of a complete RTO or a regional transmission operator, this is the next best thing. So we want to be able to capture the benefits of the market and integrate more renewables. And the result has been decarbonization throughout the West, which is very exciting. Okay, so there's a lot there. Let's unpack a few of those points that you've made because first of all, you talked about, so you've got the California, um, the, the California grid, but then Correct. you've been, right, but then you also talked about the Western region. So Correct. there are, how many grids are there in the Western region? 
Well, there's separate balancing authorities. So in the Western region, there's 38 balancing authorities. It's like a balkanized system. And each and every one of them is balanced separately with demand and supply. So having an energy imbalance market allows you to be able to integrate those systems in a larger footprint so that you can balance across a larger geographic area and thus optimize operations where you don't need as much reserves. So it becomes easier for everybody to operate. So in each of those and the benefits, correct. So, so each of those 38 has got uh, some renewables going up and down. So it's got some variability on the supply side. And in fact, power stations may be, you know, switching on and switching on either planned maintenance, unplanned, right. variable renewables. And then you've got demand, which is all over the place because you've got all sorts of stuff going on and uh, uh, Super Bowl uh, halftime, everybody <laughs> you know, opening the fridge and putting the kettle on and so on. And 38 different groups are doing yes, what the California ISO does. Uh, and, then, and then you're kind of, you, you, you've kind of clicked up a layer and you're also helping to, Im, to manage imbalances between those. Is that right? Correct, correct. And to have better integration with their partners and that helps balance the system, but it also helps with reliability because as you may remember, Texas had a big problem because they're completely isolated in an isolated grid that doesn't have any interaction with their neighbors. So they weren't able to call on anybody when they had the trouble that they had this last winter. And one of the lessons learned from Texas is you need better integration with your neighbors. The small pieces of Texas that were integrated with the neighboring grids actually fared quite well, uh, but the rest of them couldn't really uh, call on anybody in order to balance the system within their territory. And they did that because they didn't want to have federal regulation. <laughs> Texas wants to be its own state. Okay, well, California does a bit of that as well. We'll talk about uh, the vehicle standards maybe if we have time. <laughs> but, but wouldn't it be easier if you just got rid of those 38 separate operations and had a single sort of technical operator and a single market and, and one organization just doing it all? Or, or, uh, and are you bound to say, well, of course, well, yes, of course, it would be easier. And that's what, you know, the, the long term vision was that you would have separate different RTOs throughout the United States, and that they would be able to operate sort of almost a national grid. I mean, if we had a backbone national grid, we could plan 100% renewable portfolio standard for all of the United States. We don't have a national grid in, in the United States, but if we were able to have a Westwide integrated grid, of course, that would make operations much easier because you would be able to do transmission planning for the whole region. Right now, each area does its own transmission planning, which is a key component to ensuring that you have even greater integration and you can optimize to the, to the greatest level. So we're, we're, we're not doing it um, in one step. We tried, it's not going to happen in one step. We're going to do it incrementally, but each step brings benefits. So the energy imbalance market has resulted, we launched it in November of 2014, and have netted about a billion point four in benefits for all of the customers who participate. So it's a voluntary market. It's very easy. Um, the, the threshold is pretty low in terms of cost. And you're able to, to start achieving benefits right after almost year one of operations. So everybody's been really happy. And the customers actually have been eager to say, OK, we want to go to the next step. We want to go to that day ahead market. We want full integration. We want greater benefits. And if you don't give it to us, we're going to start looking somewhere else. So now we have a competitor. OK, but just let's have a look at the you, you talk about the day ahead market. Again, our audience, some will know all of this. So I'll apologize to them in advance, but, but, but many won't. So right now, what you're doing is helping those 37 other ISOs, system operators, um, if they get caught short of capacity or if they've got too much, you sort of make a market, but you're doing it in real time. You're doing it on day real off. Real time, 15 minute, five minute, yes, hour ahead, yes. 15 minute, five minute, hour ahead. So it's a very, yes. it's, it's that, it is in financial terms, it's the spot market. Correct. Um, but you now want to do a futures market. So somebody can say, well, the wind is going to be low and we're going to need to buy in. So they should be able to provision ahead. Is that right? Correct, for the day ahead market. And then you can plan for your day ahead operations and, and figure out how much energy you have to, to, to allow to participate in the market or not or how much you need. And then you're able to run a much more efficient market and hopefully have greater benefits. Okay, and you've reached in on the California ISO, 
what percentage of variable renewables or what percentage of renewables and variable renewables have you reached? Well, I, we have a very exciting announcement because this month we were actually able to reach 95.4% operation with renewables on the grid. It was instantaneous for a few minutes. It wasn't for the whole day, but it was a, a, a remarkable record because this shows that it can be done. We're very close to 100%, I mean, 4% short, 4 or 5% short. But it's very difficult to do it 24 hours, 365 days. But it's already a big achievement just to do it instantaneously yes. because a lot of people said, oh, well, there's no inertia. These big Correct. spinning machines, which which provide ride through of voltage fluctuations. Okay. So on. As soon as you switch them off, you're going to get transients. You're going to get things starting sparks flying and so on. Uh, but that you that didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. The, the system ran, we operated reliably, and we were able to ride through it quite nicely. So yes, you can operate on large percentages of renewables, almost 100%, and that was a huge achievement. Uh, we have about 35 to 40% renewables on the grid now, pretty much at all times. But our biggest challenge is the end of the day when we are ramping up, solar is going down, we are ramping up, um, and that ramping and flexibility is provided by gas power plants and peaker plants, okay. which are increasingly going to be used less and less and less, but we still need them. So that portion has to be decarbonized and that's where the focus is. And that's where our weakness on the system is, frankly. Well, I was gonna say, of course, because uh, last year you quite famously had some uh, power outages, right? Oh yeah, a couple small ones. <laughs> yes, we did. But again, this is, you know, it, it's it's fascinating to talk to you um, because of your you know role in California and California is seen as a postcard from the future quite widely, but nobody quite can work out whether it's a sort of nightmare postcard or whether it's a dream postcard because the opponents of renewable energy will say you know look how foolish they did all these things and then they had these power cuts obviously. Uh, because variable renewables or because it, it, the sun doesn't shine at night, which they should have been able to, to, to forecast. And of course, the, the fans of renewables will say, oh, no, no, nothing to see here. We had Jigga Shah on um, one of the episodes. It was actually episode nine saying, well, but, you know, for all sorts of reasons, that could easily have been much better managed. Uh, we could have used more demand response. We could have interconnected more. Um, and so, you know, you're taking, if you think it's because of the renewables, you're taking the wrong lessons away. So which is it? It's definitely not because of the renewables. And I would like to say that it's a postcard of the future, which is very positive. Um, even though we had those small outages, which were due to the ISO, one was about 20 minutes, one was about an hour and a half of a couple of hundred thousand customers that got a lot of press. Uh, but if you're looking at operating the system, it's within the parameters of operating a very reliable, any whether fossil-based system or any other kind of system. It wasn't the renewables that were the problem. There were some issues with our software in terms of um, overcounting some capacity that we have. So we've increased our margins from 15% to 17.5. We didn't have enough flexibility in storage because this did happen after 5 p.m which is the, the ramp going upwards. It was a very hot day. It was hot throughout the West. So we couldn't count on imports that were not on the contract to really come in because Las Vegas was 120 degrees, but Portland, Oregon was 105. So everybody needed the power. There wasn't as much excess power throughout the West. So highly unlikely heat wave that covered all of the West and actually strained resources. Um, and also demand response didn't show up as much as we had expected them to show up. They did come in in a very large way, but we expected a little bit more. And frankly, what pushed us over the edge was a 400 megawatt power plant not coming online and taking an unscheduled outage. Um, so it wasn't that was renewables. A, that was a, <laughs> and that was a gas power plant. Correct. It wasn't renewables that did it. It was, it was that power plant that just, it's, you know, it, it, and, and wind died. Uh, so it was a, a lot of factors that came in. However, this summer, we have 2000 megawatts of new battery capacity coming in, lithium ion. So we're going to have another additional 2000 megawatts we can count on specifically from the 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. hours, which are going to be the critical ones. And we believe that is going to give us a huge advantage. Plus, we've also adjusted some of our wheel throughs 
to ensure that we can meet local capacity and demand uh, before before we start exporting, because even during that time, we were also exporting. California is an importer, but we also export um, to our neighbors. So there were a lot of factors going on, a lot of lessons learned. I believe we're in much better shape for this summer, but it was if one thing we know for sure, it was not renewables that did it. Okay, look, in, in Texas, you can really say, well, it wasn't renewables because yeah, some wind tripped out, but it was really minor and the grid was not really counting on it. Uh, it was really counting on a lot of gas and then the gas tripped out uh, and that was the big problem. And the coal, that's, everything that, and the coal And the coal. And so that's my kind of, you know, that's my kind of uh, thumbnail sketch of Texas. But, you know, it, what you've got going on in California, you keep on, you've got these targets for renewables, which are, you know, uh, which, which are very aggressive for 2030 and, and beyond. And you're, that's compressing the number of hours that the gas plants operate. So they become less and less profitable and yes. then they get shut down and you've also shut down the nuclear. So, you know, and then when it breaks, you say, oh, it wasn't us, it was the, it was the <laughs> gas, it was the gas. You know, they should have been more reliable. I mean, is that really fair in your, in your heart of hearts? Is that really fair? Well, you know, we are repowering the ones through power plants. So we have brand new pickup plants as well. So it's not like they're old clunkers that we're relying on. We're relying on good gas plants to be able to provide that energy. But I, I get your point. It is true. We're going to have gold-plated gas turbines that are going to operate very few hours throughout the day or even throughout the year. Um, so then the next question is, does it make sense to operate them on gas? And the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, as they're repowering their in-basin power plants, have basically decided that they're going to repower them for hydrogen. And that they're going to be looking for the next fuel to come in and power those turbines, whether it's a blend to begin with and then transition to 100% hydrogen. But the idea is to decarbonize the fuels because if they're not going to be operating as long, you know, 24 seven, we don't need them for base loan necessarily. They're there for flexibility and backup and providing ancillary services. Then why not invest in a fuel that actually is going to contribute to cleaning up the environment and decarbonizing as well. And will that hydrogen come from California? Because right now, if you drive a Toyota Mirai, my favorite car, brackets not, yeah. then it's fueled with, as we discovered during the, um, uh, during the, the, the Texas problem, it was actually fueled with hydrogen from Texas um, and actually not clean hydrogen. We're talking about gray or, or fossil hydrogen, right? Well, I know, I know. We have, to give, we have to provide green hydrogen. And I think they have an initiative that they've just launched, High LA, that basically focuses on bringing in green hydrogen, using that excess energy. Because in the middle of the day, oftentimes we're just curtailing. We have excess energy that we don't even have enough markets around us to push it into. Um, so taking that curtailed energy can can be utilized to make hydrogen as well. Except that the economics on that is horrible. I mean, if you want to have hydrogen True. electrolyzers and only run them at midday, because you have this famous thing called the duck curve, where the demand yes. drops like the belly of a duck, uh, then the neck is the difficult bit. That's the bit that made your grid fall over, isn't it? But the um, if you just want to run your electrolyzers, uh, you know, uh, at the belly of the duck time, then they're going to be uh, very, very capital. In I mean, that, the capital cost of running an electrolyzer just for a few hours a day is, is horrible, isn't it? The objective is to bring it to a dollar fifty. So that's, that's what a dollar fifty per kilo of hydrogen. Kilo. Yes, yes, and then it becomes cost effective. So the goal is to get there in the next five to seven years. So that's in, the objective that has California, been set in California. In yes. California, yes. Uh, I will celebrate with you willingly if you can get there uh, in five to seven years in California. Because that's the objective of the initiative launched in LA. And they've had a big yeah. launch last week and everybody is behind it. You know, it's good to have strong goals and high goals and uh, hopefully you achieve them. So far, you know, we've, we've had a pretty good track record. Yeah, so the, the lowest cost that I've heard for kind of current plans that are approaching final investment decision is about two and a half dollars per kilo. And that's, uh, that's in, uh, in the Gulf where they've got very good sun and very good wind. Um, yes. So it's going to be very challenging. I, I believe it. Look, I, I'm a big fan of um, experience curves and costs will come down. But five to seven years to get to a dollar and a half in California, that would be a that would be going some. 
that's that's what I, I saw presentation from NEL, um, the electrolyzer manufacturers as well. That's their objective. Uh, mm. If you're at scale, electrolyzer manufacturers <laughs> promising very low cost uh, hydrogen. What could possibly yes, go do. wrong? Nothing. <laughs> what, why don't you ask them to buy some electrolyzers at the price? That will uh, that will guarantee that uh, th those that hydrogen cost, given the electricity costs that you're likely to have. I'm sorry. Well, if you, you know what the electricity cost is likely to be, wind and solar in uh, California in five or seven years, perhaps you can calculate what the electrolyzer cost is and 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 make them sign a contract for that price. Maybe, maybe <laughs> we could. But you know, we're looking at electricity costs, and even though our bills are not that large in California, people some people pay larger bills, but typically my bill isn't that big. Um, however, the per kilowatt hour cost is thirty nine cents a kilowatt hour. So it's pretty high kilowatt hour cost based on infrastructure. So I'm sure that we're we're all well used to paying a surcharge for certain things to operate the grid. And this is certainly, I mean, hydrogen is is both a storage fuel and, and a fuel and, and it provides so much flexibility in being able to decarbonize industry as well. Uh, so we're looking forward to having that avenue Available. I'm, a, I'm a big fan, I guess. And one of the things um, you know, I get involved in these arguments about where hydrogen makes sense, which is very right. much an industry uh, and also for long term storage for these ride through. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm very skeptical about it in transportation, but that but that's a different topic. The um, but the I, I think really, although I'm being mischievous about your about uh, the the electrolyzer cost and what NEL will actually sign up for. But to be honest, if all you're doing is riding through a few hours here and there, you, frankly, it doesn't matter whether the hydrogen is a dollar fifty or two dollars fifty or three dollars because you're not using much of it. That's true. That is true. And and actually, the first project that LA is launching is in Utah. It's not even in California. And the Inner Mountain project, which is being repowered, currently running on gas, but it can also run on hydrogen. They're installing wind and solar farms right around it. They'll store it in the salt caverns right close to the power station and start operating on hydrogen as soon as it's feasible. So it's already starting to happen. Okay, but you're at your 35% plus or minus of renewables now. Your goals are to get to 100%. Is it 100%? No, it's 100% clean energy, not 100% renewables, isn't it? By, By 2045. 2045. Well, because it's because how we define renewables, large hydro doesn't count as renewable. We limit hydro to 35 megawatts to count as renewable. So if you bring in the hydropower, especially from the Pacific Northwest and for Hoover Dam, um, and we want it to count towards clean, so therefore it's clean. Right, and, and what about nuclear? Because that's more controversial, right? It's pretty controversial. I mean, you saw what happened with the Sun on Offer power plant. We had a leak right after it was upgraded to the tune of $700 million and it needed to be shut down because it was infeasible to fix that leak. Um, and so we're now looking at Diablo Canyon and Diablo Canyon is scheduled to be retired within the next few years. There are some noises being made to keep it online. It's baseload. Um, it's system power. It doesn't provide us the flexibility that we need or the security that we need in terms of operating the grid. So what uh, is a much more exciting prospect and with the Biden announcement that they're going to support California with offshore wind is to build offshore wind right off the coast and uh, bring it in through a cable into the infrastructure in San Onofre and into Diablo Canyon, the last nuclear power station, and then use the, the system uh, infrastructure that already exists to push that power throughout California and incidentally offshore wind coincides very nicely with the duck curve because it picks up in the evening and it will provide us that additional flexibility and the ramp up resources that we need. Uh, so we're looking forward to that coming online. Okay, so you're going for 100% clean energy or clean electricity. Yeah, I'm trying to think, you also have 100% clean energy target in California, but that's not your department, right? Yes. Well, they're also decarbonizing some of the, you know, uses for gas and yeah, electrifying yeah. it, but that's not our department. That's the California Energy Commission. We work with them, but we'll just provide them the right, electricity. And that would be for industry and, and, and heating and, and, and so on. Yes. Okay. So we'll stick with your the electricity, although, of course, you could be getting huge amounts of new demand 
potentially onto the California ISO if industry leaves gas and goes to electricity. That could get kind of exciting, could it not? It could. We're looking at probably demand doubling um, in the next few years as we start to electrify across the board, or as the Energy Commission likes to say, electrify everything, which makes the gas company very nervous. It, it, indeed, and so and so it should, but it's the it's the right thing to do. The um, but so twenty forty five. Now you've got the president who says no, 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 no. California, you may have been way out there and ridiculously overambitious, but you're not ambitious enough. Actually, the year is twenty thirty five. Correct. Are you starting to respond to that? I mean, because presumably the only people who are going to know how to get the California ISO to zero or to, to a, a clean system by 2035 is yourselves. Correct. And we are starting to think about that, whether it should be a mandate, because our mandate is 2045. Um, and that is aligned with the decarbonization goals of SB32 as well, which is you know 80% below 1990 levels of greenhouse gas emissions. So we're looking to, for ways to accelerate that and what would enable us to reach that goal faster. And so SP, certainly harnessing demand just, response. I, I, I don't have a klaxon here for, yes, um, but for, for, for acronyms, but I'm going to get one, I think. SB 32, that was the law. That was a, a California. Senate Bill 32, yes. That's a bill that went through in which year, roughly? If you... hmm, I'm not exactly sure. I think it was 2016. Six, it was about six or seven years ago. Yeah, 2015. Yes. Yeah, yeah, somewhere there. Yeah. And that demands that California gets to 80% reduction on 1990? Below 1990 levels of greenhouse gases. By yes. when? By 2045 also. By 2045 also. Because yes. of course now the, the, the in thing is to is to um is to shoot for net zero by 2050. So that's five years before, but you're still going to have 20% left. Um, we it, are you know, it, it's, it's... It can always change, you know what? We can always change. We can always make the goals more ambitious if let we're me, ahead of target. Let me give you an example from the UK, which is very interesting because we we actually had the goal under the Climate Change Act was 80% reduction from 1990 by 2050. And the we have that's very much enshrined in law in the UK, the Climate Change Act of uh, 2008. Um, one of our cleaning up guests, um, Baroness Brownie Worthington, actually was the lead author on that act. Um, she was the guest somewhere around, I think, episode 26. Uh, but what happened is that act, the goal, was recently upgraded to be net zero by 2050, from 80% reduction to 100% reduction. And the Climate Change Committee, who are the kind of referees, they then calculated the costs and because of the trends in the cost of electric transportation, uh, renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera, energy efficiency, they actually said it would cost no more to go to 100% than a few years before they had said it would, it would cost to get to 80% reduction. Well, that is interesting because everything that I hear is that those last 10, 5% are the most difficult to achieve and the most expensive. So. It'll be interesting to see where they're getting the numbers. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's a good. It might be a case a case study for you to uh, right. take a look at, particularly if you know if the president is going to demand uh, net, a plan for net zero twenty fifty, and for uh, presumably that will mean pulling forwards the electrification net zero to twenty thirty five. Especially transportation, because forty three percent of our greenhouse gases in California are transport related. Um, so we really need to decarbonize the transportation sector. Now, were you involved at all, you or Kaiso, in this kind of tug of war between California and Washington during the last administration under President Trump of whether you're allowed to push your own transportation um, fuel standards? Not really. The ISO wasn't as involved. It was more the California state government and the Air Resources Board. But uh, clearly, we're able to have our own fuel standards. We're able to have our own vehicle standards. California always has had them. And we have always been more stringent than the rest of the states. And the rest of the states kind of follow in our footsteps a few years later. But we do have an executive order that requires that no more sales of internal combustion engines after 2035. So there's going to be rapid decarbonization in the transportation sector. We might even have to accelerate it, which means more charging infrastructure, 
which means the ISO needs to get involved to ensure that the charging happens at the right time and we're not stressing the grid, um, especially in the evening time when we're, when we're experiencing that, that net peak um, time frame. So we've got to ensure that people charge according to, to the requirements and the availability of the grid. Kind of the demand follows the availability of renewables. Right. So it must be kind of an odd role to be in as the California ISO, because you get all yes. these politicians that make all these statements, whether it's accelerating going for 2035 or whatever it is, or whether it's saying, oh, no, California is not allowed to ban this or not allowed to make its own standards. And whatever happens, if it goes wrong, you're going to be blamed, right? If there are power cuts, it's definitely your fault, not anybody it's else's. <laughs> well, we're getting blamed for the power cuts that happened for the public safety shutoffs, right? Because of the fires. And the utilities actually do that, and the utilities control it. Our job is to make sure that we minimize the impact to the extent possible within that utility service territory. But it's a shut it's a power shutoff and it's a blackout, and customers don't know the difference. So of course the ISO is always the one where they say, Oh, well, you caused all of these blackouts which were quite a few in terms of public safety shutoffs, uh, but, but you know, but we get blamed for it as well. Okay, now let's talk about those fires because they're very tragic fires with, with considerable loss of life. Uh, and th they were proven to have been caused by sparks, by the, I think the transformers every so often, you know, one of them will blow up and if the trees are too close and if there's too much, uh, if, if the forests have not been appropriately raked, <laughs> then, um, then, then there's a fire risk, and that's very. I mean, that that is that is how it happened, is it not? Yes. Well, it could be a transformer. It could be just a power line because power lines, due to heat, tend to sag down, yeah. and if they touch a branch, um, there you have it—a fire well, happens. If they touch each other or they touch a branch, then you yeah, get a, a, you have a, a spark, yeah. and it happens. Yeah. And 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 so, if you have high winds, especially you know high temperatures and high winds, and if the 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 uh, throughways for the transmission lines haven't been maintained properly, and there's branches that are where they shouldn't be, which also happens. Or you have a spark. Um, it's a tinderbox, and yeah. in the forest, it's very difficult to maintain. And I, I joke about raking because that was a, 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 that a was word President used, Trump, yes. <laughs> used by President Trump. But but the point is that that the way to avoid this is maintenance is actually cutting back. Uh, clearing forests away, making sure that your equipment is maintained. And in the case of the, the worst fires, PG&E had simply not done that. Is that is that fair? Well, they have. I mean, it's, it's, they do maintain. It's not fair to say that they didn't maintain. There's, there's, nothing is 100% exactly all the time. I think what we need to be able to focus on is, yes, public safety shutoffs are useful, but minimizing the territory. They kind of decided to, to turn the power off wholesale. And then in order to turn the power back on, you have to inspect every single line. You actually have to walk every single line, which took a couple of days. So people were without power for a few days when the public safety shutoff actually was only a few hours. So it took, it took time to de-energize the lines um, for, for some time. So that was probably not the smartest thing to do. I think they're becoming much more surgical in how they're going to be deploying the public safety shutoffs where they absolutely need them because a lot of people were upset last year and said you cried wolf. Um, and maybe they did, maybe right. they didn't. 2020 hindsight, you never know. But they're also increasingly going to have to focus in being able to island out those communities that are out in the forested areas and um, deploy microgrids and technologies that allow them to basically island out from the transmission lines, yet be able to have enough power where they are in order to be able to be safe and, in, and allow those safety shutoffs to happen. I think what we're going to be seeing in the next few years is, is the ability to have microgrids throughout California. They're able to island out and that would also help in stress conditions where due to climate change, we may see more heat events like we did last year. So that if, if you're able to you know, island out 2000 or 3000 megawatts throughout the state, uh, with energy efficiency and with DER and with microgrids and storage and 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 are able to operate um, independently from the grid, that also makes us much more resilient. Not only in in stress grid conditions, but also through natural disasters. Okay, 
I didn't, I don't have my klaxon, but DER is distributed energy resources. So yes. that would be all of the local <laughs> solar, maybe some local wind connected to the distribution grids, uh, anything else that you can do locally. And storage, yes. And, and, and of course, batteries and uh, for storage. But um, just back, backing up, just to make sure that people are following, when you talk about the public healthy, uh, public safety shutoffs. So this is when uh, the, utility for instance a pg&e says well we're expecting high temperatures and high winds it's going to be dangerous conditions so rather than risk starting a fire we're just going to do a power cut we're actually going to impose yes. a power cut and thousands or even hundreds of thousands of homes then wait for the weather to change before they can get the power back and of course people get incredibly annoyed yes uh, they de-energize the lines and then to energize them again they have to inspect them right and so and that takes time. Yes. And then when you talk about islanding for clarity, that would be saying, well, we can shut off this uh, this high voltage line, but the people can still get power because they've got a big battery locally and they can ride through. And they have a microgrid. Yeah. And they maybe have a microgrid with some local DER, distributed energy resources, yes. so they can continue to run their lives. And this becomes ferociously important, does it not? when transport is electrified as well because it's one thing to say well there's a power cut but if there's an emergency you can still get the ambulances in and out you can do public safety with the police cars can still run but if you really have electric transportation and you have these power cuts for whatever reason doesn't it become very very brittle the whole situation socially i mean the the, the risk of something bad happening really ramps up does it not not necessarily, because with distributed energy resources, like we said, if you have solar all over the place and you have it on people's homes too, we have 10,000 rooftops coming online every month in, in California. So a lot of our resources for solar are behind the meter in people's homes or in businesses. So if you have a combination of solar and a battery, so what if the power goes down? You still have the solar, you have the battery, you can charge the, you can charge the vehicle. Indeed, you can use the vehicle's battery as a resource of energy as well. In the evening, and many people do that as, as additional security. So we see that as an added level of resiliency, much more so than an added level of, 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 of problems. Again, that, the issue is, yeah, making sure that, you charge at the right time. I think that's right. I was going to say, I think that's right. If um, there's planning so that you yes. have enough resource locally to do the island, to, to, to fulfill the demand. And then, of course, the digital um, management of it all has to work. Yes, it does. Yes, I completely yeah. agree. Planning is going to be very, very important in terms of how we decarbonize and bring in the transportation sector. And if we've learned one lesson, um, is that you need to have a variety of resources. You cannot be just solar centric, 100% solar for your renewables. You've got to balance renewables with renewables, whether it's going to be hydro, whether it's going to be wind, whether it's going to be geothermal, whether it's going to be any other kind of biomass or resource that comes in and balances your renewable is very important. Regional integration, very important. We need to be able to rely on our neighbors they can rely on us. If we can tap more into the Pacific Northwest hydro, that is actually a huge benefit for us. I think they're also very interested in collaborating on offshore wind development so we can partner as well. So partnerships on a geographic scale are going to be very important, especially with like-minded states. And what we've seen as a result of the energy imbalance market, or maybe, maybe the overall sentiment, even during the Trump administration, which was very interesting, was a reduction in coal, an increase, a massive increase in renewables. And a lot of states all around us, whether it's New Mexico, whether it's uh, Washington, whether it's Oregon or, or Arizona and even Colorado, pushing forward uh, renewable energy standards, 50, 60 and 100% and beyond, very much like California. And what, what is the current status of geothermal in the West, uh, in, in that Western region? So I'm, I'll declare my interest, which is that I'm an advisor to a company called Ever, which just got funded by BP, Chevron uh, and Temasek, the, um, the mm -hmm. Singapore Investment uh, Authority. And it's advanced geothermal. It's not fracking. It's a closed loop system using, yeah. but it goes deep enough to get... Uh, a, a fluid to get water high enough temperature to generate electricity 
and and to me that's very promising of course lots of questions about the cost um but are you planning on any more geothermal or has that been the sort of um promised so often that you're because you've not mentioned it so far we're, we're you know we're half an hour well, in. we're excited about it no no we're very excited about geothermal and and we know we have geothermal resources in california especially um you know in the imperial valley which is one of the areas that needs the jobs as well um they have the highest unemployment in the state but also there's an added benefit with the geothermal resources uh, in the imperial valley there's a lot of lithium so they believe that concurrently with the geothermal operations, you'll be able to pull out a lot of lithium and they're hopeful to become the lithium valley of the world <laughs> uh, so that we can support the, the manufacturing of, of batteries as well um, in state with in state lithium, which we're all excited about. But yes, geothermal is important, it's 24 seven renewable. It's a little bit more expensive than solar, but we do need it for the balancing and we do need it for the baseload and it's a good resource. Although the ever solution is a closed loop, so there'd be no lithium because you're not extracting the the brines, the water. It's it's just going round and round. It's it's very exciting. Well, but um, if you can access the lithium and you can pull it yeah. out together with uh, with those operations, that's what they're exploring right now. Then yeah. why not? No, no, absolutely. That would be in a ge geographically yeah. in a different. Absolutely, would be very exciting because um, we're going to need uh, probably going to need a lot of lithium. If we just taking a step back from um, California for a moment. Um, I met you at uh, the Paris COP negotiations in 2015. Um, you were there with your daughter. I was enormously impressed because you <laughs> took her out of school because you said, frankly, she's going to learn more by coming to see this process and being part of it than she will by sitting, sitting in a classroom, which I thought was very sort of brave and progressive. Yes, and you know, she has blossomed into an environmental leader in her own right. She's created a club in her school. They have solar panels. She's now making sure that they have batteries. She would like to create a microgrid. She's taken an internship in hydrogen at UCI, the University of California at Irvine. So she's working on fuel cells. So look what we created in 2015. The 11 year old came to COP and now she's going to be one I, I'm, I'm confident she did an internship at the California Energy Commission at the president's office as well for youth leadership. So she's going to be carrying the flag and we'll be proud of her. So my eldest is now 11. And of course, we have COP coming up in Glasgow. Um, and so <laughs> I am I'm absolutely planning to, uh, to, to have her come and visit. I don't know about attending the full two weeks. I'm not sure that um, Glasgow in November has quite the appeal of two weeks in Paris uh, uh, in 2015. But she loved it. I, oh, I'm, I'm sure it was a unique and memorable experience. But um, a lot of what we talk about at the COPS is actually the developing world and how to, um, how to balance development and mm -hmm. uh, spreading the, the, the wealth and human well-being um, to developing countries who have, in some cases, tremendous fossil fuel resources, um, but you want them to kind of follow the California path. You want them to leapfrog to the sorts of things that you've been talking about. Um, how do you think about that? Because, you know, that, that command center that I visited was so sophisticated. It was being run by somebody with sort of two PhDs from Germany who'd been running uh, a system operator in Germany, or he'd come out of, I think he'd come out of Siemens. There was enormous you know, sophistication. And then, you know, you could see that feasibly in a South Africa. Um, but when you start to look at countries that, you know, um, uh, and I don't want to say anything bad about the countries, just they don't have those sorts of, you know, Siemens mm -hmm. e educated yeah. PhD electrical engineers kind of running around, uh, you know, for their, their electrical system in great numbers, the, the Mozambiques, the Ethiopias, the Malis, um, the, the 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 Vietnams, the Bangladeshs, that you know, and these are these are countries that absolutely have to be on this journey. But how do you help them? 
Well, that's interesting. You know, I grew up in East Africa, Tanzania, so I'm very familiar with the area. And I also am part of an organi organization that is a grassroots African organization, Re-Energy Africa. And I think the way we're going to have to look at those countries transitioning, because they still need to electrify the population, right? They're like 30, 40% electrified at best, is to start opposite of us. We started with a large grid and large infrastructures and centralized power stations. They're going to need to go backwards. They're going to start with the microgrids, with the individual solar systems and batteries in a community, microgridding that community, hopefully able to bring in education, being able to bring in industry, being able to bring in transportation, because you can charge electric vehicles with batteries and with solar and with indigenous resources. Most of those countries are blessed with good renewable resources as well. And then the centralized grid can come in later interconnect the microgrids and create a larger infrastructure that way. I, I see that as a much more feasible path than building centralized fossil powered resources with a backbone grid and then providing electricity for the rest of the nation. That hasn't worked. The beauty of renewable energy and microgrids is that it's almost instantaneous. You can have a community powered with batteries, solar, and, and maybe some other resources. Kenya, for, for instance, has quite a lot of geothermal in the Rift Valley, and they're developing that. I've seen it, and it's very exciting as well. There are hydropower resources as well that can be harnessed. And that's what the, the country should be looking at in terms of developing and in terms of creating electricity on a fast track, bringing the economic well-being of the community. That also empowers girls. It goes into all of these good, good initiatives from a social level, and especially educating young people. And they can have access to world-class education remotely. And God knows we've all learned how to do that in the past year. My kids have been learning remotely um, and online for a year, so it can be done. Um, and, and, and that's what I'm hoping to see happen. And that's what I hope the international institutions will focus on as opposed to bringing in massive infrastructure projects that take decades and are not going to end up electrifying people as fast as we need them to. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I'm going to sort of partially agree and because I've often been in the, mm -hmm. I've, I've often made the case that you've just made, which is that a lot of the international institutions it's not that they're blind to the distributed solutions. They just don't have the processors. They don't have the right. knowledge. It's much easier to do one big project than, than, than tens of thousands of villagers. But the answer, I think, has to be both because that answer that you just gave is not very satisfying for Lagos or for Accra or for, uh, you know, the, for the, because there are cities and there are industries that, that sure. need large scale power. So for the rural areas, I agree. I mean, if you look at rural Ethiopia, you're never going to have um, a, a sort of big centralized power stations and pylons looping thousands of miles. But for the cities and the heavy industry, we've got to find solutions um, that, can, that, that can enable uh, wealth creation and, and of course. Uh, all of the benefits for those countries. Right. I was I was just talking to the remote areas and electrifying the remote areas because that's what our organization is also focused on, kind of like the cell phone leapfrogging the wires and directly going into providing the service to the rural communities. As for the city centers, yes, that's a that's a different story. We need to figure out how we can power those city centers and, and of course enable industry to thrive and enable economic development, but also look at the, the, the progress that Argentina has made in terms of wind and in terms of very quickly, and you both those, we both know Sebastian Kind and the Renovar project that basically enabled Argentina in a very short time frame to become a leader in wind generation and integration into their grid offsetting the need for a large swath of fossil fuels. Of course, they did have the benefit of a centralized grid. That was, that was something that the country already had, but there are ways for it to be done and there's organizations focused on making that happen as well. And you've reminded me, I need to get Sebastian Kind. Green Map is the organization he now runs. But yes. He's responsible for, I think it's seven or $8 billion of investment in wind. Uh, going into Argentina just a few years after they were nationalizing Repsol's assets. So exactly. an incredible turnaround, an incredible exactly. clever design of policy. So the organization that you mentioned was re Renewable. Wait a minute. What was it for Africa? Renovar. That was, no, no, that no, was not the Renovar. Renewable. The, re, yes. 
the, uh, the one about I think it was Reenergize Africa because we're going to put a Reenergy link. Africa. Yes. Reenergy Africa. We're going to yes. put a link into the show notes um, uh, for sure. That's one of the things we can do. Right. And in fact, that's a topic also. Um, you're, I don't know if you noticed that Tony Blair was our first guest on series three of Cleaning Up. And he also talked about the the importance and the opportunity uh, of, um, uh, of repowering or powering Africa. Um, but we'll put a link to your organization as well. Now, are you going to be, final question, are you going to be coming to Glasgow for COP26? I don't have plans for that yet. It's going to depend on how the pandemic is, how, how our travel policies are and, and how everything is working out. So no firm plans yet. I would love to. Okay, well, so I have at this point no plans to come to California, although I would love to. Um, so that was perhaps the first opportunity uh, that we were going to have to uh, to catch up in person. Um, and I strongly suspect that if you don't come to uh, COP26, we'd miss you enormously because I'm going to be there. Um, but uh, if you don't come, then certainly I would very much hope during 2022 to come and visit you and uh, uh, maybe even visit the same control room at the California ISO again and see how you've developed uh, since my last visit. Oh, yes. I mean, you, we de you definitely should because our footprint, footprint has grown. Our activities have grown. We're very excited. We've had over 170 countries visit. We're very, very um, open to educating countries. And, and that's where Argentina came, Brazil came, a lot of the Eastern Europeans have come to basically study um, and to learn what it takes to operate a grid and what it takes to operate a control center. So it's, it's extremely rewarding. And you know, I'm Eastern European. I come from Bulgaria originally. Let's not also forget the Eastern Bloc. That's a very important and challenging area of the world that needs to decarbonize rapidly too. And they're straddled with an old fossil-based infrastructure. And it's very difficult to get that area of the world to decarbonize on the schedule we need them to decarbonize. So we've got our work cut out for us. Very good. And so now everybody uh, listening to this podcast or YouTube episode will know that uh, where I go to learn is the California ISO control room. And I'm looking forward <laughs> to my next visit. Well, definitely. And I hope I'm still chair of the board when you come. Thank you very much for joining us today, Angelina. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Michael. It has been wonderful. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Angelina Galitova, chair of the California Independent System Operator, talking about some of the challenges as California moves to 100% clean electricity. My guest next week on Cleaning Up is Gina Demanig. She's the managing partner of Emerald Technology Ventures, one of the preeminent energy and industrial venture investors in Europe. Please join me at this time next week for a conversation with Gina Demarnig.